When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're talking to Jeffrey Cohen about his new book, Belonging, The Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. Welcome to the show, Dr. Cohen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. I am so glad that you're here and we get to talk about this really important topic. I know that it will definitely resonate with our listeners. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure, I'm happy to. I'm a professor of social psychology at Stanford University, where I teach and conduct research. And my training is as a social psychologist. I spent about maybe 20 years now. Uh, studying social psychology and conducting research in it. So that's my bread and butter. I get the sense from reading your book that you like people and you're genuinely curious about what makes them tick. And I'm curious about what led you on your path when you were looking ahead to higher ed and thinking about where you wanted to go to school and what you wanted to study. Did you know what you wanted to do? Oh, that's a great question. And uh, thanks so much for your comment. It really is true. I do love people. I find social life wondrous. I mean, I guess some people really are into the natural world and climbing mountains and looking at grand vistas. I just really find daily social interaction full of wonder. And I have for as long as I can remember. Initially, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to be a a writer. I, I loved writing short stories. And I think that social psychology is very similar to the humanities. It's one of the social scientists that really gets at what it means to be a human being. And what it means to be a human being is to have to deal with social situations all the time. And how we deal with situations, that's really at the root of what I love to do and what I love to do research and why I love social psychology. Did you know this field existed? How did you come to find this major at college and and grad school? Oh, man, uh, I did not. I remember when I took my first introductory psychology course uh, at, a, at a kind of community college uh, in my first year as a freshman, as a freshman, I took uh, an intro psychology course and I was reading the textbook and I read about the famous Milgram study where ordinary people were essentially coerced uh, or socially pressured is a better word to kill another human being. And 63% of participants did this. They didn't really kill another human being, but they had the experience that they did through a experimental setup. 
And that study and so many others really stood out to me as, wow, that is just deep, that social situations can even overpower our moral scruples and lead ordinary people to do extraordinarily horrible things. And so I got really into that. And that was the first time I had heard of this field, social psychology, was as a freshman. And to this day, I really think that kind of knowledge needs to be out there at a much younger age. And I think it could really help teenagers in middle school and high school, for instance, to just understand the power and the nuance of social dynamics and how they can shape you both for for good and for ill. And I think that's kind of one of my enduring feelings I've talked to with a lot of other social psychologists is that we just wish that this knowledge was was out there more uh, in the hands of people who could really benefit from it. So it sounds like your freshman year, you were at a community college. Were you just taking the one course there? Is that where you began your higher ed journey? That's where I began my higher ed journey. Uh, It was at a school because, uh, uh, at a a kind of community college, because I was admitted to uh, my main college, uh, Cornell, as a, I was on the wait list, and then they admitted me the, the second semester. So I stayed at home my first semester, and I took a couple of night classes, and one being this excellent psychology course taught by a professor there, and uh, that just got me started. So many of my guests have shared that they found their passion through community college. Not all of them, but a, but a large number. So it makes me happy that the community colleges get these um, shout-outs that, you know, during these episodes. Yeah, totally. I mean, a great teacher can launch a thousand ships, as they would say. And uh, I really think that that is, that is the special power of a great teacher in wherever they may be. And they aren't necessarily in a classroom. They can just kind of open your mind and change or redirect your journey. So tell us about what inspired you to write this book. What inspired me to write this book was both a a kind of confluence of factors. The first was just a desire to get out into the world the knowledge that my colleagues and I and many, many other scientists doing this kind of research have been doing over the past couple decades, but really even beyond. We're part of this continuing conversation uh, in social psychology. And that was one reason. I just wanted to get the knowledge out there. And I, and I do see the field of social psychology as the study, the scientific study of how to create spaces that are truly inclusive and democratic. So when I gave the book the title Belonging, it was with that in mind that my field, though it's very heterogeneous and diverse, it's always since World War II been very concerned with how to create situations that surface people's points of view, integrate them, and allow all people to flourish and to feel like they're contributing to the larger group. And so social psychology, I do believe, is really a story of belonging, how to create situations that are supportive of belonging. So that was one factor. Uh, Another factor was just the times we live in. We We are going through such such a tumultuous time in our world and in our country. And Pete Buttigieg called it, he dubbed it, I co-opted this term, a crisis in belonging. What seems to define this point in history in part, not entirely in part, is that few of us or few groups feel 
confident in their belonging. We are so many of us like we feel like strangers in a strange land or to co-opt another term by the sociologist Arlie Hochschild, we feel like we're strangers in our own land. And this crisis of belonging, we become very disconnected. We become very disconnected from each other, from other other groups, polarization, political polarization, nearly at an all-time high. We're very racially segregated. I think something like 75% of white people don't have a black friend. The political parties live in increasing isolation from one another. Then on top of that, there is all the systematic exclusion based on race, gender, sexual identity that happens in our society. These are all kinds of manifestations of the ways in which we feel excluded or that we exclude others, uh, sometimes inadvertently. And so the book is really my effort to contribute to making things a little bit better, making things a little bit better. And I, I, I do think that social psychology can help. It's not the only solution. We do need systemic change, institutional change, changes in our policies, changes in our laws. But what social psychology reminds us of and what I, I try to accomplish in the pages of this book is to make it clear how each of us has a power in our day-to-day lives to make situations a bit better, a bit more inclusive, a bit more democratic. And we can do that in small ways that sometimes have big consequences. And that's why I wrote the book is a kind of two things. Just I really believe that this knowledge needs to be out there in the world. And uh, the point of time, point in time in which we're at, I I feel like this could help. This could help things. This could empower each of us. It's not going to solve the world problems that we're in, of course, of course, but it is empowering. These little ways in which we can do things that that create belonging in our day-to-day encounters, it's as close to magic as you get in psychological research. Now, I'm a hard-nosed scientist, but when I've reviewed the research and conducted some of this research, I've, I've been very surprised at the power of small things at the right place and the right time to set things on a better course. In the opening to the book, you tell us that it's a book for everyone who wants those around them to thrive. And you also tell us that we all have a desire to need and belong. One of the things you put in the book that hit me personally as a, as a real truth was that when we don't belong, we can experience it as a physical pain. Can you talk about how our brain does that and our bodies do that? Well, that is work by, among others, uh, Matt Lieberman and Naomi Eisenberg, who find that when we experience social exclusion or social ostracism, uh, even just in a kind of brief way, in a kind of minor laboratory setting, the regions of the brain, of the central nervous system, associated with physical pain activate or, quote, light up. And so we seem to have evolved to register social exclusion as a kind of pain. Social pain is what psychologists call it. Now, why we can weave evolutionary stories for this? As we know, I know as a parent, you know, your kids, your babies are kind of born into this world helpless. They really, we depend on other people from the moment we're born. It it's always still amazing to me how helpless infants are. I mean, they cannot do anything on their own. They don't even recognize danger very well. 
at all. <laughs> and so we're born into this world needing the help of our social environment. So that's that's one way it might be sort of ingrained in us evolutionarily or one reason. Uh, another is that, you know, as a species, we're pretty physically pathetic. We we're we're not very strong. We're not very large. But together, cooperating, we're quite powerful. And so we have evolved to go through this life journey together in order to survive. And that is very important to our species. We need each other, not just to survive, but to thrive. And it seems, it seems to be encoded into our DNA, this, this need to belong, this need to connect. Now, of course, there's individual variations. Some people probably need it less. Some people are more hermetic. But in general, we thrive better together and we need each other from the very start to the end in order to make it. We cannot go it alone. And so that, I think, is why our brains register social isolation or social ostracism is pain. It is a warning sign. Watch out. And some exciting biological research by Steve Cole and others uh, has shown that when we experience prolonged isolation, our genome actually changes in ways that put our biology on the defensive as if we're prepared to be physically wounded. So one of the ways in which this is encoded into us evolutionarily is through this mechanism in which if we feel like we're alone, our bodies actually prepare for the worse and get us ready. And uh, as a lot of research suggests, that that state is pretty good if you're under physical threat, right? If you're going to be wounded, it's good for you to be biologically prepared. But if that sort of fight or flight mechanism is turned on all the time, uh, it can be really devastating for one's health. You tell us that belonging is the feeling that we're part of a larger group that values, respects, and care for us. Mm. And you let us know in the book that you were influenced by the work of Lewin. Am mm. I pronouncing that correctly? Mm -hmm. That's correct. And you have one of his sayings as your lab's motto, which is, if you want to truly understand something, try to change it. Why is that your lab's motto? It's a good question. It's a really good question. I think that to really understand something, you do have to try to change it. You get a sense of the ways in which a system is laid out, I think, when you try to push it in one place and, and see if it moves. And I, I think that you can kind of do a lot of observational studies, a lot of correlational studies, trying to understand what is the cause of, say, a social problem, let's say like academic underperformance, you might think, yeah, what the real problem here is a lack of, of willpower. And you might do correlational studies where you assess willpower and correlate it with academic performance. And you might come up with a lot of great theories. And, you know, it probably does turn out that students higher in willpower uh, achieve more academically. Actually, I know it, it does turn, it, that is true. But is that truly the causal culprit in academic underperformance? You don't really know until you get in there and try to boost willpower and see if it has any effect. Uh, and then I think you're often, your eyes are often open 
open in that process. You often, for instance, learn that, you know, what you thought mattered doesn't matter nearly as much. Uh, for instance, you might try to boost kids' willpower and discover that has kind of marginal effects on their academic performance, that, that other things in the system suppress, you know, you kind of try to move a kid's willpower, but then something else in the system intervenes to prevent that boost in willpower from tran to, into translating into higher academic performance. For instance, there might not be enough parental support, or there might not be enough economic resources there, or resources for learning for the student's grit or willpower to turn into higher academic achievement. Now, I'm not saying, of course, willpower and grit matter, but we really understand how much they matter by trying to change that kind of construct and others. So I, I do think that, you know, it's like you're you're a tinkerer to some degree when you're a social psychologist. You're, you can't, and the idea here is that, you know, we all go around the world with our theories about what matters and Things are intercorrelated. That's just the nature of our world. But to really understand what causes what, causal relationships, you have to get in there and, and intervene. And I, I really do believe that that's true. And often problems are a lot more complex than you think. At the same time, often some of the problems that you thought were deep and fixed turn out to be a bit more malleable than you had thought. And the reason why they're fixed is because we're, we've been using the same wrong key to try to open a door. But if we try something else, then bang, the door opens. You mentioned students using grit and perseverance. And one of the examples you have in the book is students who get sent underperformance letters, particularly by their college, and why those letters and how they're written can have a huge impact on what the student does next. And you tell us that in order to change systems and help people thrive in them, we first have to understand their life experiences and their perspectives. How did that shift in understanding where the students were coming from affect the interventions for their underperforming schoolwork and what the college or university might want to do differently to support them rather than just a letter that induces shame? Yeah, that's a great, great question. This is research uh, by Shannon Brady, a, a social psychologist who uh, extensively studied this. It was her, her dissertation. And what she did was to look at the academic probation letters that colleges send underperforming students. And these probations are, are usually like wake-up calls. You're, you're underperforming. You're not doing as well as the standards of the college demand and you need to do better. And that's the purpose of the, the probation letters is to try to get these students on a better path. Now, the first thing that Shannon did was a bit of perspective getting. She asked the university administrators, well, what's your intent with these letters? And invariably, the administrator said, yeah, we want these students to, to succeed. And we want the letter to assure them that they can succeed, but they need to correct course. We want the letters to support rather than thwart students' belonging. But then she tested the effects of the letters on actual students and found that mm, most of these letters were just inducing shame. They made students feel ashamed. They made them feel worse. Oftentimes, because they said, you know, you're not up to par. Actually, the very term probation, right? It has all these negative con shame-inducing connotations. It's a kind of unfortunate frame. Um, 
So the content of the letters were inadvertently making students feel like they didn't belong. And so then working with university administrations, uh, various university administrations actually around the, the country, Shannon designed a better letter, sort of recrafted the letter to get the message across without undermining belonging. Now, how did she do that? There, there were a lot of what we call in social psychology wise elements that were kind of wise to the psychology of the people that were trying to support. Among them was the message that the probation, the so-called probation process, probation letter was meant as an induction into a process to get them back on track. It was not a referendum on them, but a an attempt to help them restore their standing. So it came from good intentions, and there was a belief in their potential to get back on track that was readily conveyed. It was also conveyed that, yeah, a lot of times students underperform in school for a variety of reasons, not just because they're being lazy or they're distracted. Many times it turns out that students have a lot of external commitments and misfortunes that undermine their academic work. So that was acknowledged in the letter. And among many other elements, what was also included were testimonials or stories from other students who had been placed on probation and their experience so that the experience was normalized and that they could see that there was hope for getting back in good standing as demonstrated by these um, as demonstrated by these these success stories and she found that this message got exactly the same information across without inducing shame and even found a little bit of evidence that the students who got this letter were a little bit more likely to uh, or were, were more likely to make it back into good standing than students who got the standard or regular letters, uh, though that, that's more of a tentative finding in the research. She still has to conduct larger scale-ups to test the behavioral effects of it. But what is for sure is that the letters were can be recrafted as so much of our as so much of our situations at work or school can be recrafted to still provide people with the information they need without undermining their belonging and even supporting it. I used to work at the campus writing center when I was an undergrad. That was my, um, my campus job and I had a writing scholarship. And when the students came in, they overwhelmingly already knew they were in trouble before they arrived. It was rare when the student said, I don't know why my professor told me to come here. When I was listening to you talk about the intervention letters, and when I read it in the book, I thought, I think it may be safe to assume that almost all the students who received the letter already knew their grades weren't very good, that their professor had uh, found them to be underperforming. And what this, so the school was telling the student what the student already knew without providing a mechanism for the student to tell the school what the school didn't know, which is, I'm going hungry, or I sleep in my car, or my boyfriend and I broke up or my grandmother died. Yes, that is a keen insight. I think a lot of times we, these institutions lack a mechanism for what Nick Epley, another social psychologist calls perspective getting. Too many times we assume that we know the perspective of another person, what their experience is like, including the students or the employees 
or our kids that we're trying to support. And we don't take the time or have a mechanism for actually getting their perspective, asking them for their point of view. What are you going through? What's your situation like? And better understanding what it is. Uh, and I think that's a kind of easy little hack that many institutions can introduce. Perspective getting, find out rather, you know, you know, go get in there and interview people, ask them, create a channel for them to express what they're going through, the kind of support that they're looking for so that you can get people's perspective rather than assume you know it already. And uh, that kind of intervention, I think perspective getting is one of the most invaluable pathways to, to, to creating belonging uh, in various contexts. Uh, because one of the, you know, one of the themes in, in a lot of the research is that the biases of the mind, these biases of the mind that we all share, in particular, overconfidence, confirmation bias, uh, end up leading us astray. We get people wrong. And as a result, these biases divide us. So one antidote is to perspective get. Ask people for their point of view rather than let your mind fabricate an answer to that question. Another example that came to mind for me was recently uh, a professor posted that the students hadn't done as well on certain test questions for the a recent exam as the professor had expected, and that a couple of students had let the professor know that they were very unhappy with the construction of the test. And the professor was using social media to talk about what the professor did next. And that was to use the next class period to not just tell everybody what the correct answers were, but to ask their feedback on how they thought it was constructed, if they thought it was fairly constructed, if now that she gave the answer, did they know what the question had been asking? And at the end of it, the professor let them know certain types of questions that were going to need to stay, but also said there were certain questions that were not going to appear on subsequent tests because the professor took in the feedback that this wasn't going to get the kind of results from the student, so why repeat it? What was interesting to me was the responses other professors put. Some of them thought this was interesting and appreciated the professor had shared it, but several posted to say that the professor had wasted the class time and went into sort of some of the, the students didn't, pra didn't prepare, they thought it was going to be easy, this was a life lesson, they'll have to do better next time. And you talk about the importance of what in academia we call service work, of, of getting to know people, of being available, of, of listening. And it struck me that she created a listening session and that she truly listened and the students would feel they had more belonging in that class going forward um, than they probably felt after they took the test that left them feeling disgruntled. Hmm. I think that's a... That's an interesting example, and it just points to one of the dilemmas of modern social life is that, especially in America, we are an incredibly diverse society, and and that you really experience in a lot of university settings, not as much as you know I'd want or many people would want, but universities can be very diverse places with wide-ranging sensibilities and sensitivities, a wide range of ethnic and class backgrounds, not as wide ranging as, you know, as we'd like, but it is, it is, it has shifted. Our country has shifted 
immensely in its its demographics and uh, ethnic makeup. Uh, and that's true at the university setting. So it is a formidable challenge to create institutions, especially educational institutions that serve all people with their wide ranging needs. And I think we just need to acknowledge that is really hard. That's really hard and have a growth mindset about it. We're all learning. And for sure, I know personally that I have made mistakes and assumed rather than gotten perspectives. And, and I think as educators, one thing we could just do is have a, have a growth mindset and also perhaps redefine what it means to be an educator. Being an educator in our in our society is almost like it's almost like being a, a, a shepherd of a diverse society, right? It's you're trying to make you're trying to help people become better equipped to be citizens of a diverse democracy. And that's our mission. And and so it's really, really challenging. And if you do, I mean, one of the things we, you know, that you often find, you do something to help one group and it's off-putting to another group. And so that's just just part of the challenge. There there may not be a one-size-fits-all solution. Our, our solutions may need to be tailored to specific students. And I think increasingly that's, uh, that's being understood that some of the best educators uh, anticipate or find out students' needs and, and address them, often at a, on an ad hoc basis. And, and they understand that they're very, very diverse. Um, one example of this, by the way, is some research that my colleagues and I did years ago on the phenomenon of giving, or on the sort of academic situation of giving critical feedback across racial lines. And, and we did this with David Yeager and Claude Steele and Lee Ross, uh, we're colleagues in this. And what we found, to make a long story short, is that when instructors, especially white instructors, give critical feedback to their students, white students, especially uh, white students from economically well-off backgrounds, just take that criticism and absorb it and improve. And they they understand that the critical feedback that they're getting from their teacher is a sign that their teacher wants to help them to achieve a higher standard. But we found also that that message was failing to come across to many members of ethnic minority students, such as black students. For for them, there was an understandable ambiguity to the critical feedback. They weren't sure if it came from good intentions or perhaps reflected some bias, some negative bias on the part of the instructor. And that is an understandable preoccupation that they had because of the, their awareness that there are racial stereotypes in society and they can bias the hearts and minds of others. So for them, the situation, the subjective situation of receiving critical feedback is a bit more dire, a bit more ambiguous. So how do you solve that? Well, we found that if teachers give their critical feedback with this explicit message, I'm giving you this critical feedback because I have high standards and I believe in your potential. I have high standards and I believe in your potential. That's why I'm giving you this criticism. They disambiguated the feedback and minority students responded as positively as white students to the criticism. In fact, we found that the percentage of 
black students who revised their work after getting that criticism jumped from 17% to 71% and actually put them on a better academic track so that years later, they were even more likely, these, this was in high school, uh, to make it into college. So that's just one indication of how being kind of savvy or wise to the dynamics of a, of a diverse setting and knowing that the intent behind your actions may not be the effect and what you can do about it can, can be really empowering. And you go into that in more detail in chapter nine, where you talk about the benefits of wise, wise criticism and to in making sure feedback is always instructive and encouraging that it needs to have both of those parts. There's also another section of the book that really uh, leapt out to me, which is when the first year students were asked to keep daily diaries and what you learned from that about belonging. Can you share that with the listeners? Well, this was some research with Greg Walton, a, a colleague here at Stanford. We uh, did a little study where we asked freshman college students to keep a diary of the day-to-day things that happened to them. And as I recall, one first, you know, one discovery, first of all, was just a lot of the things that happen in your daily life as a freshman are negative. I believe that roughly a third to a half of the events that our freshman participants recorded were were negative. Uh, the second discovery was that many of the negative things were social, threats to belonging. My friends went to dinner without me. My teacher gave me negative feedback. I, I wasn't recognized at an award banquet. My boyfriend or my girlfriend broke up to me. So a lot of the threats to belonging in social life obviously, perhaps, relate to other people. So those were, those were two discoveries. And then the third discovery was that the effects of those adversities seem to be more significant for Black students than for white students. So for Black students, there was a strong correlation between day-to-day adversity in their lives as they recorded and their sense of belonging. When something bad happens happened at school, their, their belonging dropped. When something good happened, it recovered. It was as if their sense of belonging in school were always on trial, being negotiated. And when a good thing happened, they felt pretty good. When a bad thing happened, they, they didn't. Meanwhile, for white students, their belonging was pretty consistent and untethered from day-to-day adversity. It was almost like it was a settled issue for them. We called this phenomenon, Greg Walton and I, belonging uncertainty, and we all experience it in some context. But for members of historically marginalized groups who are entering a new situation where historically their groups have been discriminated against, will sometimes, but oftentimes, understandably just be uncertain about their belonging. Is this a place where I can belong? And and what that does is put you in a state of vigilance where you're just looking out for cues in the environment as to, yeah, is this a place where I I feel like I belong? And as a result, little things can loom large. Uh, I remember, actually, this is Greg Walton's example. Michelle Obama, who was the first in her family to go to university, when she went to Princeton, she was she noticed that the the her bedsheets didn't fit the bed. And and meanwhile, everyone else's bedsheets fit the bed. And she felt like, whoa, what does this mean? <laughs> Maybe I don't belong here. When you're in this state, you're kind of attentive cues. And I, I've experienced this personally. When I started as an assistant professor, 
years and years ago, I entered this uh, this college. This is this and and started, and I had acute belonging uncertainty. I wasn't sure if I could make it. I was surrounded by all these esteemed scholars, and and it, it made me just vigilant. I would spend the day trying to decode the messages. Like I remember one of I remember my chair patted me on the back one day and just asked me how my class was going. And I thought, oh, did he hear something bad? I found myself at the end of the day exhausted. And when I look back on the on my day, I realized I hadn't done hardly anything except worry. And I think that's the that is the the tragic cost of belonging uncertainty. It it saps vital psychological and mental energy. Because if you're spending so much time wondering if you belong, it's very hard to get work done. And I experienced it in a pretty minor way, but you can imagine how that experience would be so much more prolonged and so much more pervasive if one is dealing with a reputation or a negative stereotype about their group and repeatedly has to revisit the question of belonging. And you tell us in the book that students who don't feel like they belong are less likely to take intellectual risk, that the feeling of belonging is really important for students to have the ability to take intellectual risks, and intellectual risks are essential for intellectual growth. Can you talk about that aspect of belonging and belonging uncertainty? Yeah, that's a great question. I I don't know if you felt this way. I, I, I know I have, that when I feel like I have people in my corner these challenges suddenly feel different in your life, right? Um, For sure. Yeah, I know. It's a very strange thing. You can kind of get into your head and start to just overthink your problems, and then they start to just grow. But then if you kind of go out and just even just socialize, there's some evidence now suggesting just, just kind of getting out there and socializing with other human beings, it's palliative. It doesn't really solve your problems, but it gives you a wider perspective. So, okay, well... These challenges I can deal with, I, I mean, or maybe I can't, maybe I can, but on the whole, I feel pretty good. I feel connected and I kind of see a sense of belonging. It's almost like a, a psychological perch. You're kind of being supported with developmental psychologists call a secure base. You have this secure base, a perch from which to view life's challenges from a broader perspective. And um, I think that's what being with others, having these connections often often do, where we feel, literally feel stronger with other people in our corner. And I think that that's, uh, that's the, the, the message of a lot of research. And w- what we found in our own research, when people feel like they belong or are connected, they're more open to challenge. When Greg and I gave Black students in our study a little activity that helped to reassure them that they belonged at, in college, just making clear that, you know, everyone faces adversity and threats to their belonging and things get better. Uh, when we gave them that, they were more open to academic challenges. They actually, when we gave them a course catalog to select new courses from, they were more likely to choose the hard classes from which they could grow and learn a lot than the so-called gut courses that were easy, but maybe presented less opportunity for educational growth. So when we feel, when we have this strength where it's just kind of, you feel larger, you feel more capable. And I don't know if you've seen this, but uh, this kind of resonated with me. Marina Keegan, a, a journalist who died tragically in a car accident, she was from, from Yale. She posted this final blog post uh, right before she died, actually. And in it, she is 
searching for a word. She's searching for a word and she writes, I'm going to paraphrase, that there needs to be a word. There needs to be a word for the opposite of loneliness. And it's not quite love and it's not really community, she writes. It is that sense that there are people, an abundance of people who are in it together and who are on your team. And I think the word she was grasping for was belonging. And you can feel it in one, it's situational. You can feel it in one domain at school or work and not in another. But when you feel it, as I said, I think it's almost like a magical state. You feel empowered and you are more likely to take on those challenges. And that's why I think that uh, we often get it wrong in this society, in the Western world. We think that what really drives behavior is smarts, willpower, these kind of essences inside of people. But oftentimes I really feel like it's the relationships, the connections between people that keep them in the game. You also tell us in the book about affirmations. And I really appreciated the clarity that you provided there because often if you get your advice from social media, it'll give you these things to say that you're attractive or you're smart or you're capable. And for many people, those don't do what I'm sure the well-intentioned person thought they would when they posted this as advice. And I was thinking about that when I came to your section about affirmation. And I thought, why has that always felt sort of not quite right to me? And I thought about how, because that's external. All of those kinds of definitions are externally given to us. They're not internally found. So what is smart? Well, it's something they've been telling me about at school since I was in pre-K. Uh, what is attractive? Well, it's something that media representation has been providing me opportunities to purchase through consumerism. You know, this shampoo, that that lip gloss, that new outfit for a long time. And you say that affirmation is something different. It's saying to yourself, here's what I'm committed to and why. And when I read that part, I thought, yeah, that's the thing that actually does affirm me. That's the thing that, that's worked for me. Can you talk about why affirmation is getting us back to our internal self and not an external? I, I really liked how you, how you put that, Dr. Gessler. I, I, it's, it's really, um, it, it, I, I thought, I mean, I, I've studied self-affirmation for, for years now, and I, I'm still trying to figure out exactly what it is. And I should acknowledge that the idea originates with my mentor, Claude Steele, uh, who did this just seminal and I think courageous work back in, back in the eighties when people were like, what is that? What is he doing? <laughs> it's like, he's doing these seemingly strange studies where he'd give people an opportunity to reflect on their value and then showed, showed that these robust effects in social psychology suddenly disappeared, like people's tendency to engage in self-serving biases or to rationalize their behavior. All of a sudden, when people reflect on, those, on their values, that just disappeared. And I think for a long time, people didn't know how to make sense of that, how to make sense of that. And I think what you're describing is the phenomenology of what he, he was discovering, which is when we feel like our worth is anchored to something stable. We have a power over the, over the situation. We, it, you know, we get into trouble when we let the situation 
define us and say how good we are. That's when we get into trouble. I mean, of course we can learn from people about what it means to be a good person, but your fundamental worth, your fundamental dignity, that has to have an anchorage that is irrefutable, irrefutable, I think, or at least harder to falsify. And and the best way to do that, this is kind of going back to Viktor Frankl, is to stake ourselves on the values that we are committed to. That is a kind of choice we can make every moment, even in the worst of circumstances. It's the one thing that we can always choose. What do I value? What will I stand up for? What would I die for? Even when Viktor Frankl's case, he was in a concentration camp, his wife had been killed, he was on the brink of cardiovascular arrest. He was thinking, my purpose here is bigger than me. It is about creating work and ideas. And he was working on this manuscript uh, that became Man's Search for Meaning in the concentration camp. And he felt like that sense of value, of purpose, kept him alive. So I think that that's a very empowering thing. And and we've used it to great effect in many of these uh, studies on so-called wise interventions that we've done, where we sort of long story short, what we do is we give people a chance in threatening or stressful situations to reflect on a core value, some something that often transcends the self. And it could be, you know, a higher sense of purpose, one's relationships or family, a, 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 um, uh, a religion, that people are dedicated to. And when people do this, when they kind of reflect on their core values, uh, it helps them get through stressful and threatening situations. And sometimes we even find benefits months, years later as a result of doing that thing at this stressful moment when a lot of times people can take a negative turn. You let us know again and again in the book that when we do the work of belonging and making sure that all people have the opportunities for belonging. It benefits all of us. And the book explains the science and art of situation crafting. We are starting to run out of time. And so I will trust that listeners will get the book and learn more. The final section of the book is the key takeaways about how we can all create belonging. To give people some actionable things they can start thinking about and doing now, would you share some of those ways we can all create belonging? I'd be happy to. The idea of situation crafting is, uh, or it captures the lesson of social psychology and much of the social sciences, which is simply this. The social situation matters. Our thoughts, feelings, and behavior, yeah, they come from inside of us to some degree, you know, who we are, our personality, but more so than we imagine, it's the situation. What happens to us right here right now in the classroom, the boardroom, the barroom, the happenings of the moment that shape us, create us. Who we are is entangled with where we are. And that's the fundamental idea of social psychology, the power of the situation right here, right now. And the good thing about the situation is unlike the past, you can change it. You can change the situation right now through your actions and and your utterances. And situation crafting is kind of the verb that that I created to capture that idea that we have a power as part of every situation we're in 
to craft it just a little bit to make it at least a little bit better, sometimes a lot. So there are many examples of this. One of my favorite examples comes from a social psychologist here at, at Stanford, Michael Schwabe, actually a postdoc, uh, but he did this brilliant work where he was just looking at the partisan divide, and and uh, I'm going to simplify it here, but he had liberals and conservative conservatives exchange their points of view, but for one group, they did so with the addition of two words. Those two words were, I think, rather than just saying, Trump is good, or Clinton is bad, or whatever the case may be, Clinton is good, Trump is bad, they said, I think that Trump is good or that Trump is bad, or I think that Clinton is good or Clinton is bad. And by doing that, you you define the situation as one where I am expressing, we are expressing a point of view, not making statements of facts. And what that does, ironically, is it makes the other side much more open to your point of view, much more curious about it, and much more likely to learn which is a bit ironic that stating your point of view as a subjective point of view actually makes it much more persuasive, at least to the other side. So that's one example of how through our words, uh, we can recreate or recraft situations for the better. And, And there are so many others. That's one of the exciting things of this research. There are so many ways in which we can define situations for the better that bring out our collective best. So that's one example through the words we use, the criticism and high standards study that I mentioned earlier is another example. I would say off the cuff that there's probably three other tips that we could highlight here. One is simply to be polite, to be polite. It's very easy to be polite to the people who are higher in status or equal in status to you out and about in the world, but to be polite to everyone and to really mean it is powerful. And in fact, research suggests that in these in-group, out-group interactions, for instance, between white police officers and black drivers, there's a lot less politeness uh, coming from the white officers towards the black drivers and research by Jennifer Eberhardt and colleagues. And that turns out to be really important. Politeness, as Irving Goffman, the famous sociologist said, is the way that we honor the sacredness of another person's self. And to withhold politeness or to be less polite is one way that we convey disrespect, which can be really damaging to belonging. So be polite is one. Number two is affirm, affirm, reflect on your core values or help other people reflect on theirs rather than being reactive or reflexive in the situation, be reflective. And to be reflective requires us to return to these core values that define us. And because we're pretty forgetful creatures, I mean, I think generally people have very good values, generally. I mean, we've been doing these values affirmation studies with a wide range of populations all over the board and almost everyone. I don't think I've ever read an affirmation response that implicated a negative value. We almost all of us care about our relationships. We almost all of us have some purpose that we want to achieve. And where we get into trouble is those values, we often don't quite know how to enact them in the situation, or we forget them in the situation, the hustle and bustle of the situations we're in. So taking a step back to affirm our core values 
And to affirm our core values together would be the uh, second example of one thing we can do, a kind of situation crafting to nurture belonging. And the third thing that I think we can do uh, is to fight the fundamental attribution error. The fundamental attribution error, that is the one, almost the one bit of jargon I permitted myself in this book. It is a term by my colleague who recently passed away, Lee Ross, to describe this bias that we have to blame individuals rather than situations. We fail to realize that oftentimes bad behavior that we see out there in the world often reflects not so much some bad character in people, but some element of their circumstance that we don't fully appreciate. And I think that this is an invaluable lesson. The fundamental attribution error has been replicated time and again. We reflexively blame people. And you just see this even out of the grocery store when people say to one another, oh, that that was so... um, that was so discourteous of you. That was so rude of you. We are kind of constantly ascribing or attributing behavior to what's inside of people. When in fact, oftentimes when people are make a mistake or for instance, cut in line at the grocery store, it's something about their circumstance. Maybe they're stressed. Maybe they're busy. Maybe they fail to see where the line began or start. I know that has happened to me. We are too quick to leap to conclusions about dispositions of actors and too slow to perspective get and find out more about their circumstances or at least entertain the possibility that there's more to their circumstances that, that than we know. Um, you know, just to give one example, um, Chadwick Boseman, who played the Black Panther, he was in a movie with another fellow actor. I think his name was Clark Peters. And uh, Clark Peters describes how he thought that Chadwick Boseman was just full of himself. Uh, They had worked on a movie set together and Chadwick was getting all these massages and people were holding, his girlfriend was holding his hand all the time. And, and Peterson just thought, you know, Chadwick, he's just, you know, fame has gotten to his head. He just is demanding all this excessive pampering. And so he made a dispositional attribution. He blamed Chadwick, but it turned out, um, you know, as we know now, Bozeman had terminal stage four colon cancer. And he, he died. He died not not uh, not too long after. And it turned out that he was getting all that pampering to because he was he was he was dealing with very very severe pain. He was dealing with very severe pain, and and it was his circumstance, not who he was, that that uh, that uh, created create that it was his circumstances, not who he was, that explained why he was doing what he was doing. And I, I just think it is almost like a kind of golden rule that we should instead of jumping to conclusion. We we should see and judge other people as we ourselves would want to be seen or judged, what Lee Ross has called attributional charity. It's kind of the golden rule of judgment. Actually, the golden rule of judgment is don't judge. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Cohen, and talking to us about belonging and about creating connection and bridging divides. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. Please join us again.